Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land on which this work was developed and is presented. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I would like to make my stance very clear. I stand with the trans community. Trans women are women and trans men are men. Trans rights are human rights. This episode is not a discussion or a quote-unquote debate on trans rights. A person's right to live their life as their truest self is not a debate, it is a human right. If you would like to know more about why what JK Rowling has said is so harmful and how it affects the trans community, I will have links in the show notes to articles on this issue written by trans and non-binary journalists. I would also like to give a content warning for mentions of transphobia. If you would like to skip over my summary of JK Rowling's transphobic comments, skip to 3 minutes and 12 seconds. This episode is a discussion on what we do when the creator of something we love reveals their values are in conflict with our own. Words are, in my not-so-humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic, capable of both inflicting injury and remedying it. Albus Dumbledore, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. On June 6th, 2020, J.K. Rowling tweeted a link to an article titled Opinion, Creating a More Equal Post-COVID-19 World for People Who Menstruate, with the comment, quote, People who menstruate. I'm sure there used to be a word for those people. Someone help me out. Wumban? Wimpened? Wumud? End quote. The article in question used the term people who menstruate to make it clear that not all people who menstruate are women and not all women menstruate. This small change in vocabulary is a significant one, as it is trans and non-binary inclusive. By poking fun at this headline and then expanding her views in a longer Twitter thread, Rowling revealed that she objects to identifying trans women as women. Now, in the middle of a pandemic and Black Lives Matter protests, Rowling's timing could be called odd at best particularly considering that the article itself was a great resource that talked about supplying free pads and tampons to people. Rowling's initial comment was unnecessary and tone-deaf, and her further comments and subsequent essay were downright offensive and harmful to the trans community. In light of Rowling's recent tweets, many Harry Potter fans, myself included, felt betrayed by her blatant transphobia and complete lack of empathy for a community who is particularly marginalised and vulnerable. I was upset and disappointed that someone whose work I admire and love could be so hurtful and ignorant. On the night of June 6th, I tucked myself into bed and looked at the book that was perched on my bedside table, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire by J.K. Rowling. It was my special Ravenclaw edition that I had bought only a month ago, the fourth installment in my collection of the Ravenclaw editions, and I had started rereading the series in isolation as a coping mechanism. And as I stared at the beautiful spine with the bronze-foiled text, I thought of a question I have asked myself time and time again. Can we separate the art from the artist? Should we? This is a question that has plagued not only me, but centuries of artists, critics, journalists, creators and thinkers, and literally anyone who has sat down to watch a film and seen the black and white Miramax logo glow on the screen. 
But it seems that in the time of the internet, when receipts are screenshotted and controversy is just one tweet away, we find ourselves asking this question almost every day. Can I still enjoy this piece of art now that I know the creator stands for something that I believe is wrong? If you want to know what a man's like, take a good look at how he treats his inferiors, not his equals. Sirius Black, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. This isn't the first time Rowling has been called out. From house elves loving enslavement, to the anti-Semitic portrayal of the Goblin characters, to the one Asian character being named Cho Chang, the Potter books have their issues. But this instance is a little tricky, because this time it's what Rowling said, not what she put in her book. And the Potter series doesn't mention anything about the trans community, so by proxy, it's not transphobic. Right? This is where I'd like to bring in Jane Austen. Austen's works were written in the early 19th century and published from 1811 to 1818. Now, it is a truth universally acknowledged that, in Austen's time, to not be a straight white man in possession of a good fortune meant that you were probably oppressed in some way. Straight white women married to said men were pretty well off as well. But Austen's works don't talk about race, they don't talk about the rise and fall of Napoleon, which was happening at the time. In fact, the works are almost completely devoid of the politics of the 1800s. I think that's what makes her books so timeless, because if you take out the 19th century customs and references, you've got a story about humans dealing with love, betrayal, and awkward situations. The thing about Austen is that she didn't write political articles for journals, she didn't write about her opinions on human rights in her diary, and she certainly did not have Twitter. And so we can never know for sure what her politics were, but we can see clues in her work, and we know the context in which she was writing. Austen's works were created in a system that enabled her, a white woman, to create them. In Pride and Prejudice, our heroine Elizabeth Bennet challenges the system by refusing to marry the person she's supposed to marry. Instead, she falls in love with someone better. He's nicer and handsomer and richer and, according to the rules, should be out of reach for someone like her. This challenging of the system, however, is very subtle and still ends in the nice rich white people marrying each other to continue the line of nice rich white people. Everyone lives happily ever after, and the system, while briefly challenged, remains intact. The same could be said for J.K. Rowling and The Wizarding World. The world of Harry Potter is filled with nostalgia for an imperial Britain, one whose roots are deep in colonialism and oppression. Rowling created a world in which there is no place for queer characters, no place for characters with neurological differences or disabilities, and POC characters are just uncomplicated support acts. And it's clear that at the end of the series, the Wizarding World has not changed. In the epilogue, Ron spies Draco Malfoy's son, Scorpius, and says, quote, So that's little Scorpius, said Ron under his breath. Don't get too friendly with him, though, Rosie. End quote. So, 19 years later, after they've defeated a dark wizard and his followers, and all is apparently well... This divisive culture still exists in the Wizarding World. The magical world is still primed and ready to create another Lord Voldemort, the next fascist leader, because the culture hasn't changed. And yes, one could argue the factor of time in here. It was the 90s, it was a different time. But Rowling has shown on Twitter that it's not like she wanted to include trans characters all along, but the politics of the 90s were too conservative. 
And even in the case of Dumbledore, if you want to argue that writing an explicitly gay character in a children's book in the 90s was too risky for Rowling, then what about now? As we've seen with the Fantastic Beasts movies, she's had the opportunity to canonise Dumbledore's sexuality and still hasn't. If baking a chocolate cake is like writing a novel, then you've got all these different ingredients that are needed to make it. When you taste the cake, you will taste the chocolate and the sugar and the vanilla essence. You can't taste the egg or the flour, but that doesn't mean it's not there. In fact, you can't make a cake without the egg or the flour. So even though Rowling's prejudices are somewhat covert in the Potter books, they're still inherently baked, pun intended, into her work. But wait, if we apply the same school of thought that we applied to Austen and Rowling, does that mean that most art created 10 or 20 years ago or even longer ago is riddled with problems and things we don't agree with? Well, yeah, probably. (laughs) Because the culture we live in is one that is built on and continues to support systemic oppression. But we can't take all the art out of our lives. So we have to ask ourselves what we want to actively support and where we should withdraw support. Austen didn't come out and say anything that directly conflicted with what I believe in, but Rowling did, and that is worth challenging. Now, the issue is, I don't want to support Rowling anymore. How do I go about this? I'm not buying anything Malfoy thinks is good, said Harry flatly. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. If I buy a novel by well-known anti-Semite Charles Dickens, I truthfully don't know where the money goes. (laughs) but I doubt it goes directly into the pockets of Dickens's living ancestors. I definitely know it's not going to Dickens himself. In the case of J.K. Rowling, however, if I buy anything Potter-related, from the book itself to a $13 official merch Hedwig keychain, a large percentage of that money is going directly to her. And our money is so important because not only does money give Rowling and all the Potter-affiliated companies the means to keep running their businesses and make more Wizarding World media, but it also sends a message of support. It says to WizardingWorld.com, to Warner Brothers Studios, to Portkey Games, and by proxy to J.K. Rowling, your ideology doesn't matter to us. We will still buy your stuff and enable your cultural and financial success. So, if we withdraw our money, then we withdraw our support. But what about still giving attention to J.K. Rowling and her works? If I don't give a cent to Rowling, but I still talk about her books in the public sphere, whether in a negative light or positive, I am contributing to her cultural relevance. Side note here, I am well aware of the irony of me discussing this topic in a public sphere. We can also look at this in terms of Twitter followers. By following J.K. Rowling, I'm not actively giving her any money. But consider the possibility of Rowling having zero followers. Her transphobic tweets would be sent into the abyss and probably go unnoticed. No one would care. Maybe someone would stumble upon her account and report it and that'd be it. But Rowling doesn't have zero followers. In fact, she has, at the time of this recording, 14.5 million Twitter followers. And her reach is even wider than that number. It extends past her followers to journalists and commentators and anyone who talks about her online. Her audience gives her cultural power, and cultural power means that her tweets will continue to make headlines and her transphobic comments will still reach millions of young and vulnerable people. I'm not saying that every one of Rowling's Twitter followers or everyone who has weighed in on this issue online is an enabler of her power to spread her hate so far and wide. I also used to follow JK Rowling and I am clearly weighing in on this issue. 
It's the way Twitter is designed. It gives you these headlines unprompted and encourages you to debate them, to have your say, to broadcast your opinion. When you go to write a tweet, the sentence that prompts you is, what's happening? Similarly on Facebook, the prompt is, what's on your mind? Social media actively teaches us to weigh in on things we don't know about or maybe don't even care about without considering the repercussions. That being said, I think we should recognize that if even half of Rowling's followers unfollowed and in general just stopped giving her the time of day, her cultural relevance would probably diminish. And what if we redirected that money and attention and support elsewhere to, say, uplifting voices by queer authors instead? As I said, the irony is not lost on me. In the show notes, I've linked some great Twitter threads of YA fantasy series written by queer authors. But what happens when we take this out of the public sphere? What happens when I turn off the podcast microphone, when I log off Twitter for the day, and when it's just me sitting in my bed looking at Harry Potter on my bedside table and wondering if I should read a different book? Performative activism is when you post in support of a cause on social media, but you don't actually do the work behind the scenes. Basically, you don't practice what you preach. I have to ask myself, if I am boycotting this artist and their work within a public sphere, and yet I don't take their work out of my own life, is this performative activism? My knee-jerk answer is yes. But, like with all big philosophical questions like these, I think it's more complicated than that. It takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to our enemies, but just as much to stand up to our friends. Albus Dumbledore, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. I need to call myself out here. I am much more likely to excuse the behavior of someone who has created something I love. I wasn't a huge fan of Michael Jackson's music before the Leaving Neverland documentary came out, and so it wasn't even a decision for me to stop listening to his music because I didn't really in the first place. But Harry Potter is different. The reality is that Harry Potter has been a huge part of my life. It has taught me not only positive morals and values, but also about constructing a story and writing style. My first foray into planning a full-length novel was a Harry Potter fanfiction. No, it was never finished, and no, it was never published online. It will never see the light of day. But for all the good things that Potter taught me, I have to recognize that it probably taught me some bad things too. For all the lessons on the importance of friendship, love, and being true to yourself, there were also messages of whiteness being the default and immediately judging someone's character based on one defining attribute, such as Slytherin. These messages, like a lot of the media I consumed when I was young, probably contributed to my internalized misogyny, racism, and heteronormativity. So it has to go further than online. This new understanding of Rowling's work has to come into effect in my real life on a personal level, in a way that won't be seen by others and won't be validated or acknowledged. So what does this mean? Well, this leads me to the big word that I have purposefully avoided up until now. The C word. Cancelled. Listening to the news? Again? Well, it changes every day, you see, said Harry. Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Back in the day, being cancelled was something you really had to work for. You had to elope to Scotland or write a novel with homoerotic overtones. But now, being cancelled is only 280 characters away. It's been boiled down to a knee-jerk reaction that happens more and more frequently, yet to a lesser and lesser effect. How many times has James Charles been cancelled? How many times has Kanye West been cancelled? 
These are just two examples of public figures who demonstrate that no matter how many times people try to cancel you, if you have enough followers and enough money, nothing can touch you. There have been many articles on cancel culture, if it's good, if it's bad, what it means, and I'll link some of these articles in the show notes. But my understanding of cancel culture is that it springs from the idea I was talking about before. If we don't give this person attention, if we essentially cancel them and their work, then their relevance will diminish and their offensive views will not reach a wide audience. Basically, boycotting. There are upsides to cancelling people and things. Some of the time, cancellation is the best route because giving airtime to these people and their actions can reignite trauma and spark quote-unquote debate over human rights that shouldn't be debated. But I think cancel culture has now made cancellation such a frequent occurrence that it's lost its weight and power and often doesn't work. And even if it did work, cancelling someone completely and refusing to discuss them ever again robs us of the opportunity to reflect on the culture that enabled their actions and let them get away with it. Cancel culture pins the blame on one individual, rather than a whole structure. This is not to say that the individual is blameless. We all have a choice to do what is right and good, even if society is telling us we can be wrong and bad and won't be punished for it. But cancel culture can sometimes feel like cop-out culture. The public admits that this person did something wrong, participates in performative activism to cancel that individual, but the structure that allowed this person to do the bad things in the first place and let them get away with it is left unexamined. Now, it's so much easier to live this way because looking at our culture also means looking at ourselves and examining our own privilege and prejudices. It involves asking ourselves, how have I enabled this? How can I work towards changing the structure? This is something we can apply to JK Rowling as well. I know I ignored the warning signs. As I got older and recognized the issues with the Potter series, I continued to read it. I continued to buy Potter-related merch. And this whole research project has really pushed me to interrogate who I am and the culture I inhabit, the books I read, the authors I support, the content I create for this podcast. I am not without fault here. We must try to not sink beneath our anguish, Harry, but battle on. Albus Dumbledore, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Before moving to my closing statement, let's forget about the big questions for a second. Here's what I'm actually going to be doing in response to Rowling's comments. 1. Stop buying any Rowling or Potter-affiliated stuff. 2. Stop using the platform of the podcast to do lengthy discussion episodes on all things Potter-related. 3. Discontinue my reread of the series. 4. In general, just stop giving Rowling the time of day. In addition to this, I plan to 1. Read more books by trans and non-binary authors. 2. Donate to queer charities. I'll have some links in the show notes as well. And three, use my platform of the podcast to discuss and uplift voices that aren't JK Rowling's. Of course, there are always going to be hypocrisies. I still have tickets to see Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince in concert. And once restrictions are lifted, I will definitely be there. I paid a lot of money for those tickets and I want to see the orchestra play. I will continue to wear my Ravenclaw scarf because I knitted it myself and it's super warm. And to be perfectly honest, I'll probably reread the books again sometime in the very distant future. And this leads me to the final disclaimer of the episode. These things are complicated. People are complicated. 
Questions and discussions surrounding art and ethics and power and privilege are complicated. We can't come up with all these hard and fast rules for things because there are so many factors, so many contradictions, so many ifs and ands and buts. And I'm not here to shame anyone into doing or not doing anything. That is definitely not the point of this episode. But here comes the but. <laughs> but there are times to be kind to yourself, but examining your privilege is not one. It's uncomfortable and icky, but what I've taken from all of this is that I need to turn the critical eye on myself. It's not enough to read Rowling's work and deem it problematic and cancelled. I need to examine how this work has shaped me and how I have continued to support it. Moving forward, I need to actively unlearn all of these things and change my habits, what I read and who I support. What's insane is that JK Rowling essentially raised us to stand up to her bigotry. At Katie Joy Ofo Show on Twitter. I don't think we should stop talking about J.K. Rowling or Harry Potter completely, because it's a series of books that defined and raised a generation. But when we do discuss her work, we should question why it was so important, and dissect the elements of our own culture and lives, oppressions, biases, systemic injustices, that made it so. And though these discussions may seem fruitless and more energy than they're worth, I think they're important. We have to question the morals and ethics of art making and art consuming. We have to recognize our privilege as creators and our power as consumers. Because even though you're one of billions, you're also one of billions! That's a big responsibility. It sounds like a lot of work, and it is. But it's going to take a lot of work to change. And, as Dumbledore said, we all have to make a choice between what is right and what is easy. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Angyari Rice, the host of the Community Library podcast. If you enjoyed it, you can subscribe on iTunes or Spotify so you never miss an episode. You can also follow the Community Library on Instagram at the underscore community underscore library and use the hashtag the community library on Instagram or Twitter. I also have a blog, angyarislibrary.wordpress.com and there you can find full transcriptions of the episodes and more links and resources. If you want to know more about any of the topics I talked about today. On the blog, I've compiled a huge list of references and resources that I used when I was researching this episode, so I highly suggest you check that out. The podcast artwork is designed by Ashley Ronning. You can look at more of her work at ashleyronning.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time. Bye! Bye.